Hello, and welcome to the Bicycle Touring Pro Podcast. My name is Sam Bennett. Thank you for joining us today. We've got a really great, uh, fun episode for you. Uh, we're talking with Alex Sidney of Tall Bike Tour, and Alex is really unique in that uh, he is a bicycle tourist. Uh, he has traveled, he's currently in Europe, he's, he's traveled all over Europe, um, but he rides a tall bike, which is basically like, you'll you'll hear it, uh, him describe it in, in the show, but it's a bike stacked on top of another bike. Um, you kind of have to climb to get on and off. Uh, and so it's just a really cool, unique uh, unique story and unique take on traveling this way. And he loves it. This is the only way that he travels. So um, I hope you're really uh, going to enjoy this one. Uh, but first, our show is brought to you by the Bike Tour Shop at biketourshop.com or bicycletouringpro.com slash shop. And if you use the code podcast, you can get a discount um, on everything on the Bike Tour Shop. And your support of the Bike Tour Shop uh, helps us keep this podcast going. Uh, so I encourage you to go there uh, to look for uh, you know anything you need for touring. We've got Ortlieb products as well as uh, great books and uh, other other gear and merchandise. So I encourage you to take a look at that. And again, you can use the code podcast for a discount just for our podcast listeners. Uh, so thanks again for joining us today, and I think you're really going to enjoy this show with Alex Sidney. So without further ado, Alex Sidney of Tall Bike Tour. Alex, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for thanks for coming on. How are you? Thank you. I'm I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, well, hey, thanks for thanks for joining. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Um, you have a really unique story and a uh, a really unique uh, view on on cycling and bicycle touring, and so really excited to talk to you. But why don't you tell everybody just a little bit about yourself to start? Where you're from um, and where you're at right now? Um, well, I'm nine. No, I'm twenty years old now, actually, as of like a few days ago. Happy um, birthday! And I thank you. And I uh, I began this tour when I was uh, more or less just turned nineteen. Um, I left the UK. I, I live in the UK. I'm half British, half Italian, and I've grown up mostly in the UK. And I've been uh, building and riding these sorts of tall bicycles since 15 years old. And for this specific trip, I left the UK in January, came to the Netherlands and uh, did workaways, which is foreign exchange unpaid work for three months uh, while trying to busk to money in my spare time. Uh, saved up enough to leave in May. And on May 1st, I then spent the next coming six months cycling across Europe and into Asia, uh, all around Turkey, back and forth, uh, 9,000 kilometers so far, or 6,000 miles, I think that is. Um, and now I'm taking the winter off in Cyprus to recuperate and fix up the bike and my financial uh death <laughs> that's that's awesome but i i think you you left out a really key and unique part of your story <laughs> um so tell us about about oh, yeah, tall, uh, <laughs> tell us about tall bikes and what is a tall bike and how you got involved and interested in that and um you know how you use a tall bike to to travel the world okay um so the definition of a tall bike broadly is just a bicycle that's taller than a regular bicycle and um yeah i've been using them since 15 and most of them are homemade by me except for my current one which has been built by a guy down in bournemouth who's built mini bike and they're very practical in their own way so obviously it's not for everybody just like some people ride cargo bikes and they love doing that 
Um, and uh, they are essentially, a lot of them are designed to be cargo bikes. Mine is a cargo bike except upwards instead of outwards, although it is also outwards. The, it has the wheelbase almost of a tandem and the height of uh, just over six feet, I think, which is about two meters. Um, and it carries regularly on this tour between 70 and 120 kilos. Wow. That's not including me or the dog or the trailer. So quite a lot. And that's due to my uh, budget. I don't have a lot of money. So camping gear as a result is very cheap and very bulky so everything kind of just weighs more um but luckily the bike is designed for that it's fully steel homemade and welded together um what else should i say in response to this question (laughs) what was the question no that's great i just wanted to to tell folks what a tall bike is because i think that's really unique for you so for those who are listening um first of all there's there's links in the show notes for you can see a picture of what this looks like but you picture basically it's like basically two bikes stacked on top of each other right you have a bike with two wheels and it's like you add another bike frame on top right <laughs> and then you sit on the very well, top with with my old tall bike my original model my first model which i built when i was uh, 15 with a bit of help that one was essentially a double stacked bike and it's very interesting to see people can tell like how it's built because it's just a bike on top of another bike with the rear yeah. drop cut off yeah. and the uh, steering and drivetrain linked up. And they're pretty simplistic and not very practical at that point because it has a major issue that the uh, seat is over the rear axle. So if you le- lean forwards, I mean backwards, uh, when going up a hill or suddenly start, you will wheelie yeah. and fall off yeah. the back, which uh, <laughs> is, is a lot of fun, actually. So to counteract <laughs> that on my first few tours in the UK, I would load everything onto my front fork and uh, then have a rack. And the luggage would come all the way up to my handlebar, which is a meter worth of luggage. And that would keep me front weighted. And I only had a front brake on this bike. It was sketchy as hell. Wrote this for about two years, but my current tool bike is not a bike stacked on top of a bike. It's got um, one frame at the top, and then the rest of it is completely custom, made yeah. from spare parts, from yeah. recycled parts, from metal, uh, and it's designed to be cargo bearing. So the only bike parts in there is uh, the main triangle, and obviously the dropouts, the forks, and things like that. Yeah, no, this is incredible. I'm looking at a picture of it right now, and uh, this is super cool. And then, so what, what's nice about it? I guess for for touring is that you've got plenty of space to store gear, right? Because <laughs> um, you basically yeah, got like there's... three times the you know the the frame space, I guess, and you've got a little uh, almost like a, a a platform at the bottom to store, I imagine, gear and stuff like that. Um, but talk to us a little bit about how you know how you store all of your all of your stuff on the bike. Yeah, so I, I don't know how recent of a picture you're looking at with Mambo, which is the yellow one. Um, but if you can see four bags, I assume. Yep. Uh, yeah. Then, the, the, so the rear pannier just has normal rear rear panniers from Caridis, who are my choice of uh, pannier brand, and they are both, I think, like twenty liters each. They're pretty big panniers. Uh, Caridis, I went for them because they have this large capacity. And then the panniers in the center of the bike, underneath, they're hanging off the outer sides of the cargo bay, and they have a massive capacity. These are actually recumbent panniers, and the the reason I have them down there is because the weight is then below me. So if you're going down a hill at for high speeds, it's per perfectly stable it feels like you're skiing because the weight is below you it feels like you're floating on a cloud it's amazing um and yeah i I can load up that much luggage and on a regular bike i have tried touring briefly uh with a regular bicycle and if you load the panniers too far behind your like your feet are hitting the panniers you've got the issue that you've got weight on your forks as well and if you don't know what you're doing it can be a bit sketchy sometimes especially if the bike isn't made for it and this bike, considering it's made from scrap parts and a, a basic seven-speed setup, so it's not exactly a professional-grade bike, it carries like twice as much as what most sane people would carry and still manages that uh, without like hitting a sweat. 
The downside, of course, is I do only have seven gears. So going uphill is interesting. Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by this. And I'm, I, I imagine those that are listening, I, I, my guess is very few people have ridden a tall bike before. So, I mean, what is it like for someone who is used to riding a normal sized bike? What's, what's the difference in how it feels and how it rides? Are, are you of the belief that everyone should be riding tall bikes or is this for a specific person only? Tell us a little bit more about, about that. Well, tall bikes are fun. So it's uh, whoever wants to ride it. Uh, it's not for everyone, of course, but just like with cargo bikes and just like with different types of cars, people have preferences and uh, tall bikes serve a purpose, but also the majority of the time, they're just fun. Um, they've often been the highlights of critical masses. They lead critical masses in many parts of the world, like wow. in the US and in Germany. So you'll often see them leading because they're big and uh, visible. Often they'll be at circus events. There are, there are loads of different types of tour bikes. Very few tour bikes are designed for touring long distance. So in the world, I know of maybe five or six individuals who have toured on tour bikes. And that's basically all in all of history that I've heard of. And no one has yet toured around the world on a tour bike. So I'm hoping to set that straight. Yeah, the first one that's awesome <laughs> um, i'm not i'm not the current uh, unofficial record holder for distance though there's a guy from spain that i've been talking to and he has tall biked from spain and he's now in vietnam so he is twice more than twice the distance of me but i'm 100 the youngest and the only one that's gone this distance with a dog as well yeah so i want to talk about that as well because you've got a dog <laughs> that you travel with too and you've got a i think a trailer is that where the dog kind of kind of stays most of the time yeah well i i didn't begin this tour with a dog oddly enough i kind of i set off and i've been solo for years and then halfway through the trip in uh, between Romania and Serbia, quite literally in between two borders, between two countries, I find this cute little two and a half month old puppy who's adorable. So I think, oh, let's bring her to the nearest town because she's hungry, obviously, and uh, find her someone to adopt her. And you soon realize this is Serbia. There are stray dogs everywhere. No one will adopt her. So I took her to the vets and getting her registered, shipped, vaccinated cost 25 euros, which is 500 pounds in the UK. So it was so cheap. And uh, she was small enough that my cargo bay, the space in between the two uh, central panniers that you might be able to see that space is usually where my tent goes and it was just big enough to put in a, a small dog uh, enclosure and she was in there for two months while she grew up uh, which meant I could keep an eye on her she was directly below me and she was uh, she actually really liked traveling in the bike and then she grew out of it so as we got to Istanbul I saved up and got a um, a ripoff trailer it's a like Bob trailer but it's called Mammut it's one of the Turkish brands that have the exact same design since Bob went out of business uh, and I bought that quite cheaply and uh, modified the trailer a little bit with some help to make it suitable for the dog and uh, now she travels in the trailer instead uh, definitely having the extra what eight kilos at the moment she is i think uh does make a difference you can feel it but i was already carrying like a total of 180 including me so it's not that much on top and if i'm going up a really steep hill i can just take her off uh, the bike keep her on the leash and she happily will run alongside she always has <laughs> bundles of energy so uh, she can uh, help out when necessary that's that's amazing and, and what a great story too meeting uh, meeting her on the road um that's that's incredible do you do you plan on on keeping her with with your journeys going forward um i hope to i i my aim is to go around the world but i'm also aware that depending on what routes i take it might not be possible but yeah. equally there's there's no other option i can't send her back to the uk because my parents really do not like uh, having animals um <laughs> so unless i can find someone who'd be willing to take care of her for a year or so which i, I would be open to then uh, i guess i have to bring her and i'm looking at changing my routes because of having a dog now like originally my my route through asia is quite complicated and i still can't actually pursue that route right now which is why another reason why i've taken the winter off because my original route was going turkey georgia azerbaijan across the caspian sea 
um, to Kazakhstan and take the Pamir Highway to China, go through China, into Vietnam or Laos, and uh, through Southeast Asia towards Australia. And that's basically the first type of around the world sorted. Yeah. The issue is China, Myanmar, Iran, uh, Azerbaijan, uh, Turkmenistan, and a few others are currently closed borders due to COVID or mm-hmm. due to political instability or due to protests. So uh, getting through those, even without a dog, is not really possible. And I know yep. loads of people who are currently doing yep. it because they just fly over these countries. Yeah. And one downside of having a tall bike that is not collapsible is that um, I cannot fly. I can take a boat, but even that, difficult. I have done it, obviously, to get here to Cyprus and off the UK. It's, it's doable if the boat lets unboxed bikes on and dogs. Yeah. Um, so I, I really need to work out my route. So one other route I was thinking of taking is, uh, now that I'm in Cyprus, take the ferry to Israel in the spring and go uh, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and probably die from the heat uh, to Dubai, and then get a ferry to India or to Iran, but I've still got the same issues that some of those countries will not let the dog through. And some of those countries are still closed. So if that option doesn't work, then I'd head down through Africa. But for Africa, I wouldn't want to do it alone for safety and just for like mental support. You're on your own for so long. Yeah. And uh yeah you don't have any backup. So I'd have to upgrade all of my camping gear because if one thing breaks, getting things shipped to Africa is just not going to happen easily. And uh, the animal permits that I've researched into, it's just not doable with a dog and for her safety as well with all the wild animals. So I would have to find someone to leave her with for a year. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, it adds a whole level of complexity, you know, with with the dog and with the, the tall bike. I didn't even think about not being able to fly, you know. Um, so are you are you planning on doing, uh, you know, the Western Hemisphere, North and South America as well? And if so, do you have a plan yet for how you're going to make that work? Yeah, I, I'd love to. Um, I, ideally, my plan was originally to get to Australia by going through Asia and then from Australia by some miracle find a uh, cargo boat or ship yeah. <laughs> that would uh, allow me to ship the bike to the US or to Canada or to mm-hmm. South America and then start on that continent. But um, it's quite difficult. Like I have worked out that I can fly with the dog. With She needs a few more vaccinations before she can fly, but I think it's doable. Yeah. Although I yeah. prefer not to for like eco-friendly reasons. But if I have to, I'm not opposed to it. Yeah. But I have to be fully certain that the bike will go onto a ship because usually Absolutely. there are options to ship your bike without flying. Um, and you can put them in a box. But the maximum sizes of these boxes, my bike, even with the wheels and handlebars and seat off, always will exceed in weight and in size. So the only way is to buy a container or something. And those things, I'd use up a quarter of the space. So my hope is if I can find someone who is like moving their van, for instance, (laughs) uh, that they live in, then I can just put it in the back of their van and pay them like a hundred euros or something. And that that could work, but you have to know the right people for this. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm glad we're doing this podcast and I'm going to put something up on the site. So if any of our listeners or readers you know have any any genius ideas or if you happen to be moving from australia to the to north america and you've got some space you know reach out to alex um so um this is awesome and i hope that you know we can maybe figure something out for you but yeah i think uh you know the 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 cargo ship is is probably going to be your best bet um that's a it's a great idea but it's just about finding the right person you know like you said so yeah, that's, like some will let people, I've heard of people getting on these cargo ships and working to earn their keep. But when you add a bike on, which is extra yeah. space taken up and you yeah. add yourself on with the food and then you add a dog on, which is a uh, yeah. health risk as well for the dog and for other people, it's just not worth the money for them. They're going to say, no, there's no chance of people saying yes. So uh, another way for me would be some people do actually sail across the Atlantic and through, uh, through other seas as well. So if I could find a private sailboat that's big enough to also <laughs> carry a dog on a bike by some miracle, then I'd be happy to help on a sailboat. Although I have zero experience but always open to learn a new thing that's that's incredible that's awesome so 
Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, the, the journey that you've had so far, you know, you started in the UK and you, you cycle all the way to Turkey and now you're in Cyprus. So tell us about that. You know, what was the route you took? Um, what was your experience like, you know, was this your first time cycling, you know, kind of long distance solo and, you know, I, I'm sure you've got some great stories, uh, in addition to, uh, to the dog. So tell us a little bit more. Um, well, in terms of long distance, my first long distance trip for me was 70 miles, which isn't a lot. And that was just going to the coast and back from Norwich where I live which is only about 40 miles from the coast. And I, I laid in bed for three days after that because my legs were just burning. And this was on a, an, unload, an unloaded tour bike when I was, what, 15, I think. So that was hell. But it really, like, after that, I was able to then do these 20-mile rides and not feel tired. And you realize once you've done one or two long-distance trips, it gets easier. So I then did to London, which was 120 miles. And then uh, in 2021, someone joked to me, wouldn't it be funny if you cycled all the way to Scotland on a tour bike? And me being a spontaneous decision maker with ADHD, the next morning was leaving to go to Scotland and it took me 10 days. Yeah, uh, but I did it. And I ended up doing that trip actually three times in 2021 because it was that much fun and lived in Scotland for seven months as a result. Um, And then uh, by the end of 2021, I said, right, I want to get out of the country, which I've been wanting to do for years. But COVID pandemics and the, the borders were really closed. So it was very difficult. But the moment they opened again, I used my Italian passport and just left as soon as possible, which is why I came to the Netherlands much earlier because I figured, well, the borders could close again at any moment. Our, our government is known for just opening and closing randomly. So I came to the Netherlands and then after that, there were no borders uh, for a while at least. So it was like, yeah, I'm free. And uh, I had planned my route. Yeah, I, I had planned my route six months in advance. Like, I mean, every single road turn all the way to Istanbul because I, I had just planned, let's get to Asia. So I planned till Istanbul and not past there um, using Eurovelo routes because, uh, but I, in my head, I was only really planning the logistics side of things, not the route until Switzerland, because I realistically didn't even know if I'd get past Switzerland. Like, would a tour bike really make it across the Swiss Alps? Yeah. And I, I got through the Alps within the first three weeks of my tour from the Netherlands, and it was actually so much easier than I thought it would wow. be, considering I have seven years. Um, so yeah, I followed Eurovelo 15, the, the Rhine River, to stay on the flatlands for the first like a uh, few hundred miles until Switzerland, then did a, a loop around north uh east yeah north, northeast switzerland so kind of bordering the Alps. i didn't go fully over them because i wasn't prepared for that then i went straight into the mountains of uh, bavaria southern germany and uh, climbed up a mountain with a bike just to get a famous photo outside the uh gates of nashwenstein castle which is you're not even meant to get bikes up there but I wanted to, so I did. That's awesome. <laughs> and then uh, took a bit of a detour through München or Munich um, to uh, Passau in Germany, where I joined Austria. And at this point, I've joined the Danube River, so Eurovelo 6, I believe. And then follow Eurovelo 6 through all the way into Hungary, Budapest, um, Serbia, um, still following the Danube into Romania. And then at Drobita, Turnu Severin, I believe it's called. I split off from there. And uh, by now, I was ready to take on bigger challenges. So I thought I'd switch to Eurovelo 13, which is the the, uh, what's it called? The Iron Curtain Trail. It's the original dividing between East and Western Europe, yeah. and it follows mountains entirely. It's absolute wow. hell. And I highly <laughs> do not recommend doing it if you have an overloaded bike. So the, the first part of it was okay coming through Serbia. It was pretty mountainous, but by now I was quite used to it. And Bulgaria was pretty cool. I, I took it to Sofia and uh, went into Macedonia. Macedonia was one of my favorite countries. People were so nice there. And then the, the hardest part was following the road mountains in the south of Bulgaria. This is bordering Greece. And it was about 
what, 400 miles of this. And for the first few days, it was completely off-road. And when I say off-road, I don't mean just kind of dirt, which I can manage, but it was steep uphill, loose gravel. But there were just, even a 4 by 4 couldn't do this sort of track. It yeah. was uh, still the size of a road, but there were massive uh, cracks and uh, uh-huh. like holes in the road and rocks quite literally like the height of my waist everywhere so you you have were lifting the bike over things and unloading it and reloading it all the time and nova wasn't in the tr- in inside the bike for like a day at a time because it was safe enough to just let her wander around and follow me uh and i was meeting one person every couple of days encountering a town every two or three days it was just the middle of nowhere so that was a very interesting experience for me and it was a, a relief to come into turkey and back into like busy cities even though i don't like busy cities it was nice just to have what people i guess yeah uh, the ride into Istanbul was absolute hell because I was following the D100, uh, which is the uh, equivalent of the M- M1 in the UK. It's a humongous motorway, but it really is one of the only ways in uh, if you are taking the more direct route. And I pre-planned this, so I really wanted to stick to route and not have to plan anything else, which was a bit of a bad decision. This is a five-lane road. Turkish drivers are notorious for being absolutely terrible when it comes to cyclists, and that is completely true. Uh, and um, yeah, it was quite scary, but I have an air horn on my bike on purpose which does let people know that i'm around and i always record <laughs> as much as i can for both for youtube and both for security of my my own um but there was this truck driver behind me who so, someone had managed to force me out into the middle lane this was still on the d100 wow. and you're not supposed to be in the middle lane like I, there were three lanes on either side of me pretty much and uh, cars are just not letting me out i'm trying to indicate to go to the right to get back onto the right hand lane where it's safer and they're not letting me back because the driver behind me this massive truck videoed me and within a week it had uh, or within a month it had 2.6 million views which is well wow. i think it's somewhere around near to three million now um but i received more than 200 death threats in under a week oh as a result goodness. of this. this these were from turkish people like the amount of i can't say racism but i think it's called xenophobia just people like get out of our country or if, if you're in our country go by our rules because ignorantly they assume that i'm in the middle of the road because i chose to be there and not because yeah. i was forced to be there and also just oh that's a cool bike but you're stupid um and and loads of like assumptions about my bike and about me and being british that they really don't like british um and yeah so that was pretty interesting uh lo- loads of different comments hate stuff but equally like the Bulgarians, when I was in Bulgaria, everyone said, don't go to Turkey. The Turkish are absolutely horrible. And wow. that's due to the whole 500 year ownership thing, cultural trauma, etc. Um, they just had something against Turkish, which I could not understand. And then when you get there, with the exception of one video, of course, everyone in person is really, really nice. Like it was huh. one of the most welcoming countries I've been to, with, with the exception of Macedonia. Um, and people were really nice. Yeah, Istanbul, of course, it's it's a big city. It's very diverse, so it's not um, as authentically Turkish. It's it's a bit of everything. But as you get more into the east and more into the middle of nowhere, uh, you you meet loads of people who are very, very nice. And I had loads of great experiences. So after Istanbul, I kind of made a beeline for Cappadocia, which is the famous place with all those hot air balloons. And that was originally where I'd uh, planned to end my tour, uh, which was just, I planned to go to Asia. And I thought, well, if I get to Istanbul, that's kind of meh, I'm a few meters into Asia. I might as well do a bit more and just go to somewhere scenic. So without leaving Turkey, I thought Cappadocia would be a good place because I'd always seen it as a kid and thought about let's go there. So I made the plan for that. And then I I got to Cappadocia. Um, I first went through Lake Tuz, the famous salt lake. And um, this is like, imagine a frozen over lake. It does look like it's frozen over. And I've seen so many photos of other bike packers who have gone onto there and camped on there or biked across and taken cool photos. So I I met up with two other people, um, an 18 and a 19 year old my age who was from the US and he was also touring around the world. Uh, on a regular bike and his friend i'm not 
Russia, his age. Um, and we met up just for that one day to go camp on the lake because they were going in the opposite direction. Wow. And uh, yeah, we get onto the lake and immediately we start sinking because what we didn't oh, no. realize was uh, we, we're trying to get the bikes through. Like one of them managed to get the bike through quite easily because it was a bit lighter, but our bikes are quite, my bike especially is extremely heavy. And we kind of broke through the layer of salt and into this kind of sulfuric mud below, which is very, very smelly. And very good for your health, apparently. But getting the bikes through took maybe two hours to get. And we, we rode maybe, I don't know, a kilometer and a half, two miles in, into the middle of the lake just uh, to get a camping spot um, under the stars. Because once you get past the first few meters, it hardens. And after that, you can ride on it. But it ruined the bikes and everything. Like we were up to our uh, knees in this stuff. It's very hard to wash out. And on my bike, it did definitely leave some marks. But it was an interesting experience. Nova loved it. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, got to Cappadocia like four days later. Uh, this was after, uh, actually, I had uh, cracked my forks doing this, which wasn't a result of the tall bike failing. It was the forks. So this is a bicycle part that um, I think the Salt Lake is very like bumpy. It's like going over washboard. Yeah. And combined with this many miles, you could see the angle of the dropouts was not designed for touring. And it made, made some cracks that I could tell were going to get worse. So I managed to find someone. This is the good thing about having a steel frame. If you have an issue, just find a welder and yeah. uh, it's sorted. So we did that. And uh, then I headed to Cappadocia, where I then proceeded to fall off a cliff within the first day of being there. Not a big one, but a cliff. Oh, no. Um, what happened? <laughs> well, I was on my off day and I wanted to explore Pigeon Valley, which is a very scenic valley that you definitely should never cycle through unless you're on a mountain <laughs> bike. Uh, I was walking the bike because I wanted to get it up to one of the top points to get some cool photos with a drone. And my bike was full unloaded it was just me the four empty bags and i left the trailer and the dog behind um at the place i was staying and i hiked through this valley but you're going up and down these very steep very narrow kind of walkways with steep drops on either side and the ground is so loose so i'm reaching up to press my brakes so that the bike will slow down going down this hill while i'm still walking it i keep can't keep gripping my feet either so we end up sliding off the edge and falling maybe i don't know 10 15 feet so not a massive amount into kind of bushes so it wasn't uh, a massive like the hard fall and I didn't break any bones or anything but the bike the way it fell I fell on top of it and the way it fell put all of the stress onto the fork and onto the main front part of the frame and when I got up inspected the bike there was a, a bit of damage here and there but it seemed to be okay until I checked the main down tube and this wasn't wouldn't normally happen riding it even with 200 kilos but this specific trauma to the bike had created this massive crack in the down tube that was like half a centimeter wide um and I still rode it out of there but it, it was you could tell it wasn't going to load up without snapping the bike in half so i found a welder within two days who charged me like 100 lira which is less than five pounds um and he welded it back together and bike's still working after that surprisingly that's uh what a story oh, and, <laughs> and then uh after cappadocia i headed uh southwest to ibradi where i joined uh, a rainbow gathering which is kind of like a hippie gathering community thing that happens all over the world um, in different countries and this was the world gathering for this year so there are people from all over the world including a few bike tourists that i met as well uh, and I got to improve my circus skills there because there were loads of circus people um, so I spent uh, maybe a week there and this was in the absolute mountains like it, it, this was the highest elevation of my whole trip. wow yeah the mountains of Turkey people underestimate three hours <laughs> yeah they, they were really like intense and then I uh, I was quite near to the coast so it took me three hours to descend this one mountain this was what 0.9 miles of down it was crazy uh, towards Antalya and then go to Alanya and to Tasuku, and that's where I got the ferry. And I got the ferry to Cyprus, um, and then a disaster struck again. And the moment I get to North Cyprus, uh, you, you know, with Cyprus, it's a, a divided country. You have the Turkish in, uh, invaded side, and you have the Greek side. 
and yep. they really don't like each other for obvious reasons. <laughs> so crossing the border can be a little bit tense at times. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, because there's a UN zone in the middle, uh, it, it's a bit easier. So getting her, the dog, into northern Cyprus almost didn't work because they were asking for some blood tests and stuff that I didn't know I needed because she has her vaccinations, but apparently you need some other blood tests that I didn't have. But being north Cyprus, uh, which is almost the same as Turkey, like I indirectly got told that I could just bribe my way in. So I just gave him 20 euros and they let me in um <laughs> and then within three days of being in karenia which is the unofficial capital i think of the north i'm not sure um nova ran off which happens a lot she's an escape artist so i went to track her down she has an air tag in, in her harness um oh, that's and smart. i find yeah i i find because she does this a lot i, I find <laughs> her maybe two hours later uh, just walking around like she normally does i, I knew she probably would be fine but when she came back, she refused to eat or drink. And she's Aww. a very lively dog. Like I've never had her refuse food in her entire life. So I bring her to the vet here in North Cyprus. And the vets say, oh, she's fine. Uh, take her back. Bring her back if she doesn't eat for another day. Um, but then a day later, she's still not doing any better. And at this point, she's vomiting constantly. And I'm wondering what's wrong. Like she has her vaccinations. Uh, so I smuggle her across the border into the south, which is totally illegal because you need, again, these blood tests. And the south is very strict. But the, the guards just didn't notice. So she's in the south now with me. And brought her to a vet here, which charged me 400 euros um, wow. for a, like a week of care, just putting her on IVF, basically. Um, and they diagnosed her with parvovirus, which is similar to rabies in dog, except it's not contractable to humans. But she got it from the strays in North Cyprus, apparently. Um, and apparently her vaccination didn't hold up because you're meant to multiple vaccinate them, which when I got uh, her to the vet in Serbia, the, the Serbian vet told me she needs one vaccination. They never told me anything else. So I assume that was all she needed. Um, so she was like on the, the brink of death, but they managed to kind of just put her on IVF. And now she's like back to full health. It's been a month since that happened. Uh, so financially, that really like I had savings now I don't um so now I'm just kind of uh holding on trying to uh put together these videos and I can't even find a job either because I've got the dog with me and she can't be left alone she loves to bark annoyingly <laughs> wow I mean what what is what a story I'm, I'm so glad that Nova is okay but that's that's pretty harrowing you know um and Cyprus too it's it's such a kind of crazy place because it's such a small island but then you have this division you know between the north yeah. and the south um have you because you you spent some time in both the north and the south is there a what are some of the differences um, that, that you saw? I'm just kind of curious. Well, in the north, I was there for five days and I didn't really speak to many people, but they speak Turkish. So I already picked up a little bit of Turkish from being three months in Turkey, which was nice. Uh, so the general, like the people were just really nice and they were very much like Turkish people, although they are Cypriot. Um, which is the national cheese of both sides of Cyprus, uh, which is really nice. And it's uh, still works in Lira, but it was twice as expensive as the Lira in Turkey. Mm because uh, the Greek come over to the north side a lot to do their shopping there because they know it's cheaper than Euro. Uh, and I think that puts the prices up. And also the inflation of Lira recently. But compared with mainland Turkey, it was so expensive until I crossed to the south, go back into Euro, and it's more expensive here than it is in the UK some of the time. It's crazy. Uh, I'm, I'm paying 400 a month euros for this tiny room sharing with five people. Um, it, it It's insanely expensive for food as well. Like, um, But yeah, with, with the Greek side... 
I don't know any Greek. I haven't really been through Greece. On this tour, I went through Greece, but only for 30 kilometers. So it wasn't very far and I didn't get to experience the country much. So I'm kind of learning it from scratch. But uh, the population here is like 1.2 million as opposed to the north that only has 300,000. So it's a much bigger side of the island. And the reason I'm here is because it's in the in the EU. So if I want to get things shipped here and uh, find brands with the shops that are reliable, then this is the place to be for the winter. And I can also stay here longer than the 90 days because Turkey, I used up my 90 days, which is why I had to yeah. rush over the cycle. And the North only gave me 30 days. So I still had to leave there quite soon. Yeah, well, that's, uh, <laughs> and this is what we always talk about. There, there are always incredible stories and adventure and stuff from, from travel way. So um, I, I'm really glad that you're okay and Nova is okay after some of those kind of crazy experiences. Um, but what what is, you know, you're kind of hanging out in Cyprus now. What is, what is next for you? Um, when, when do you think you'll be, you know, continuing your, your adventure? Well, ideally, if I had the money to do it, I would resume within the next two months, uh, as we get into the colder part of winter, because the ideal time to cross, uh, Central Asia, the south of Central Asia, which is the only possible time, uh, part that I can cross, because I can't do the north to Azerbaijan and China, it's all closed, but I can do Saudi Arabia, Iran, technically, uh, Pakistan and India, but they are, if you wait until spring in Saudi Arabia or in Stan, you're going to burn. It's like 45 degrees. Yeah. So the issue is if I leave any later than like January or February, uh, by the time I get to those countries, I will burn alive and there's no chance of getting through on time. So I really have to plan this quite well. And I don't think I'll be able to financially afford to leave in the next two months, let alone the vaccinations that Nova needs. Uh, my backup plan is heading down to Africa, but again, I'd need more camping gear and Nova has to be left behind. My second backup plan is to take a year off in Cyprus, which I really don't want to do, but I could. Uh, and it would allow me to find work and my like fourth or fifth backup plan is to go back into Europe and just do a year of traveling back through Europe well, again. Uh, but I don't want to cross Turkey again I've already done it and I don't like doing it <laughs> in the same the same way yeah I wonder if um, uh, I, I, I I'm wondering if there's ferries or something from Cyprus to another part of Europe you know you could you could ferry to Greece or Italy and um and start well, from there you know so there's, there's the boat to, to Turkey but you have to cross back to the north and Nova has already yeah. Between that, which is quite annoying. I can obviously fly out, but it's a bit difficult. Uh, to Israel, there is only a cruise ship, and I know some people recently did it, but they needed to box their bikes, and it cost them 400 euros for uh, an overnight trip. To Egypt, the same issue. Uh, it's crazy expensive, and you're just betting on someone will let you onto the spare space on a cargo ship. To Greece, there are regular ferries, but I'm not sure about the dog laws, and I don't think they allow big bicycles, to be honest. And again, they're still like 150, 200 euros because the distance is a lot more. So the cheapest ferry is just make my way to North Cyprus and get back up to Turkey annoyingly unless I want to fly out and ship the bike uh I've also got an interesting story if you want to hear from Macedonia of course <laughs> um so I was in the south of Macedonia I'd been here what four days I only spent about four or five days in Macedonia totally so I was in the Macedonia and heading towards Strumica I just yep. climbed up a massive mountain that took me days to get up to about 5,000 feet elevation um and I, I was overlooking Strumica now ready to go down this mountain and it was the biggest mountain I'd was about to descend uh this is before bulgarian road up mountains so there, were, there was more to come after this and uh then i realized uh for, well for reference first my brakes on my bike i have a v brake on the front which is useless because you really do not want to put a lot of tension on that front fork uh so i don't really use the front brake much it's there but it's not used but then the rear brake is a disc hydraulic so that really just bears all the load uh, and it does work really well because you've got a long wheelbase so you don't need to worry too much about drifting 
um, and it's very sharp. It works really well. But I tested it, and it turns out my brake pads had kind of just worn out over the last couple of days, and I hadn't really realized. And um, replacing them without bleeding my hydraulic, uh, I have quite cheap hydraulics, and they have some issues. I have Clark's, which is a UK Halfords brand, um, and I couldn't work out how to change them, so I was struggling. I like I didn't even know if I had spare pads with me, so I put out a call out on Instagram to a few Macedonian followers that I did have at the time and managed to get reposted by someone with like a million followers or something. Um, and uh, through him, someone eventually two guys arrive at like 10 PM. They come up the mountain with this massive uh, Land Rover and they're like, we're here to rescue you. Um, and they offer to put the bike on the top of the, the truck and bring me down with the dog. And uh, I said no, because I have a very strict rule on this tour. Since b- besides water, every single inch on land has to be done by human power. So by riding the bike or pushing the bike, either won't work. And I have kept to that. Uh, even now, like every single meter is done by bicycle. And if I do have to hitchhike somewhere to get out, then I have to return to that exact same point to carry on. Because <laughs> I want to be able to say that I cycled to Asia, yeah. not cycled some of the way and then hitchhiked a bit and then cycled the rest. <laughs> I did cycle like um, so what we ended up doing because I didn't have a hydraulic bleed kit with them is uh, I gave them Nova for safety and I gave them all of my bag and uh, by now it was also pitch black Um, it it was like 11 p.m. so my lights weren't gonna light up the road very much so they uh, used their blinders on the Land Rover and I kind of just descended this mountain with absolutely no brakes whatsoever with this Land Rover speeding behind me with all of my luggage and I hit speeds of almost 80 kilometers an hour which is about 50 miles an hour I think which is definitely my fastest speed to this day uh it was crazy fast um but it was really exhilarating but I, I knew I couldn't stop even if I wanted to because these brakes just weren't going to do it uh, but we got to the bottom and I managed to find a place to stay for the next couple of days took a few days off fixed up the bike and then carried on to do even bigger mountains in Bulgaria luckily I haven't encountered that issue since uh because I have always kept spare brake pads and learned a bit better on how to maintain my hydraulic wow and all of this on a tall bike that's six feet off the ground <laughs> it's uh, yeah, i've that's also crazy. i've met uh, a total of 15 other people on tall bikes on the street really well. wow not, not, not who are traveling on tall bikes although i haven't met one and uh none of these people were by accident this was pre-planned i'm on a, a facebook group which i've been on since building my second tall bike i believe i found out about this facebook group called freak bikers unite and uh <laughs> ironically and it's just not just for tall bikes it's just for people who like to create interesting bicycles that are custom like choppers tall bikes um, recumbents all sorts of bikes and um yeah i put a call out when i started the trip saying who's around in europe like where do you live and i managed to meet up with four tall bikers no three tall bikers in wuppertal in northern germany um a couple of freak bikers in utrecht in my first day of the tour um then seven more tall bikers in munchen that was the biggest group of tall bikers i had met before and we did a kind of mini critical mass with a bunch of us um and then i met um a girl in hungary who i'd pre-planned as well and uh, she had actually toured on her tall bike which was a similar to my original double stacked and she had toured from uh hungary to italy on that thing so she was the only female tall, tall biker i knew she was uh, about seven years older than me i think uh, so it was interesting to to meet another long distance tall biker um and then i met one more tall biker after that in istanbul uh who helped me with fixing up my bike when i was there so I, i've met a few other like-minded people but no other like full-time travelers yet uh that are on tall bikes at least wow uh it's it's incredible such a great 
great story. And uh, we're going to have to try to find that Facebook group and I'll see if I can, uh, I'll see if I can link it uh, show notes. So, well, Alex, this has been a lot of fun. Um, It's really been, uh, you're an inspiration, uh, certainly not just to bike tours, but uh, to tall bike uh, fanatics and uh, freak bike uh, fans out there. And so uh, thanks so much for taking the time and chatting with us. Uh, I'm really excited to see what's next and continue following uh, your your journeys. Can you just let folks know where they can follow you and, and learn more? Yeah, um, on uh, YouTube, the uh, link is youtube.com forward slash tallbiketour. Um, um, and on Instagram, the username is tallbiketour. Facebook is the same for my page. And I have a website which has not been updated since bringing the tour. So it has no information on the tour. But if you want to know about my backstory and uh, photos of the processes of building uh, more than 20 different freak bikes since I was 50. And I have all of my backstory on my website, which is tallbiketour.weebly.com. Uh, and yeah, that's about it. That's great. Well, we'll, we'll post links to all of that. And I'm sure folks are going to be interested in following. The, yeah, keep us posted on your progress. I'm really excited to uh, you know hear more and continue following your adventures. And we'd love to highlight more on the site. So please do keep us posted. But in the meantime, thanks for joining the podcast. And uh, it was great chatting with you. Yeah, you all too. Right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Alex. All right. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of the Bicycle Touring Pro podcast with Alex Sidney of Tall Bike Tour. Uh, Again, my name is Sam Bennett. Thanks for listening and make sure you're following us on social media, Instagram and Facebook, Bicycle Touring Pro uh, and keeping up with the website for new stuff we're putting out. A reminder that the podcast is brought to you by the Bike Tour Shop at biketourshop.com or bicycletouringpro.com slash shop. And you can use the code podcast uh, for a special discount. Uh, Thanks again for listening. Uh, Everybody be safe and happy holidays.